and welcome to The Right Idea, where we discuss the people, the politics, and the policies that drive Texas. Uh, I'm your co-host, Brian Phillips. I'm the Chief Communications Officer here at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. And with me, as always, is our Vice President of Policy, Derek Cohen. Derek, how are things going this week? A lot more busier than uh, weeks past, I'll tell you that much. Uh, It does feel like there definitely continues to be a a growing buzz uh, around Austin, around the the, uh, state legislature for sure. Or it could just be because... This weekend, we have the Super Bowl. So, you know, we want to get to all the issues. We want to talk about that. But I think what everybody is, is, is dying to know is what are your Super Bowl picks for this weekend? Are you going to take the Philadelphia Eagles? Do you have, do you have, a, do you have a dog in that hunt at all between the Chiefs? And, the, you know, some people look at Patrick Mahomes and he's a Texas Tech guy. So there's a Texas connection there. But there's also one with Jalen Hurts. So right. who, do you, who are you picking in this, in this game? Well, I, I think that I speak for the soul of America when I say I'm stridently anti-Philadelphia Eagles. Um, <laughs> You know, any, Cowboys Homer is that why? Is oh no, not no? Okay. not at all. But my my team, uh, you know, from my ancestral homeland is uh, the Pittsburgh Steelers. So, oh, so I, I am statutorily obliged not to actually root for the uh, uh, Philadelphia Eagles. And it makes it really easy when you know they do things like assault Santa Claus and you know do all the other stuff. The uh, that they're probably known. a safe place to be to be anti Philly sports Philly anyway. Yeah, um, yeah, we'll leave it at sports. Really. You know, you know, and I do want to get to the show, but I do. I, there was this controversy I was listening to on other radio stations. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so we, you know, we don't really talk about sports here, although we probably could. I'm sure there's plenty of political fans who would love to to talk about sports um, all day. One thing, one interesting thing was was Super Bowl Monday. Mm-hmm. Making that a a national holiday and actually taking away like one of the other holidays like you know like like uh, maybe Columbus Day or so. There's already controversy around Columbus Day, you know. But and I'm not sure that anybody really cares necessarily to, to celebrate that one. But the day after the Super Bowl, perhaps perhaps could be a national holiday. What do you think about moving a national holiday to to Super Bowl Monday? Well, I'm I'm definitely all for it, and whether or not it's a, the reallocation of Labor Day in response to the collective bargaining environment they've created, taking away the, Labor Day in, in the NFL, but what, whatever whatever the case may be, I'm I'm <laughs> I'm all for it. My one thing, my one peccadillo on the idea, though, I'd say, is if you look at the folks that are complaining about Columbus Day, mm-hmm. do you think they would not also complain about having a day that glorifies the barbaric savagery? of of grown men running into each other with helmets or whatever they would say about that particular uh, about that particular endeavor. I, I think I think people are people would complain regardless. You know, maybe <laughs> maybe you know maybe it's best just targeted at somebody that was you know. Uh, look, I think hundred years ago. Any other excuse that we can have to to have another mattress sale uh, once a <laughs> month is probably a good idea. Um, all right, so uh, that's enough of that. Carbuster car sales as Let's well. Let's get into. Know, yeah. All right, so you're so you're who you're taking. So you're gonna just you're just gonna root for the Kansas City Chiefs. Then. Yeah, I'm, I'm pulling for Kansas City. I I. I Transferred uh, loyalty early on in the uh, in the playoffs to to Cincinnati, um, or you know soft second. Also got to got to represent the AFC North as well. Yep. Um, All right. Well, I, even though I'm a Cowboys fan, I will. I think I'll have to. You know, Vegas is picking the Eagles. I think there's there's a lot of a lot of reasons why they're the stronger team. But you never know. Mahomes is is, is crazy. So uh, it'll be a good game. I think it'll be one of the better games that we've seen in a long yeah. time. Um, all right. So let's get to the politics. Let's get to the policy and mm-hmm. the politics of what we're talking about today. Um, I do want to say, uh, just as a matter of housekeeping, we do appreciate your feedback. We do appreciate your comments, uh, however uh, uh, pointed or or critical. Uh, so if you want to get in touch with us, uh, we're we're both on Twitter, both fairly active there. I'm um, at 
at Real Phil is where you can find me and at Cohen at TPPF at Cohen at TPPF is where you can find Derek. And we love to have your suggestions on topics. And, and if you hate our Super Bowl picks or if no. you want to gloat because yeah, you're a huge Mahomes fan, uh, t- uh, totally a place to do that as well. Um, all right. So working backwards later in the show, we're going to go in depth on the pernicious practice of taxpayer funded lobbying. Uh, we'll talk about a little bit about what that is. Um, it's been going around the last two or three sessions. Uh, feels like there's a little bit more uh, momentum this time. Um, so we'll talk about what that is and the likelihood that, that we might uh, end up banning the practice of, um, of uh, tax refund lobbying. Uh, in the top topics, obviously, there was a State of the Union this mm-hmm. week. So we had to listen to Biden for four hours um, uh, and, and jaw, jaw boning back and forth with Republicans uh, during the broadcast. Um, we're going to talk about, um, um, uh, in terms of top topics, we're going to uh, talk about you know the new, um, or not, I guess, it's not new, but the announcement that the that uh, Governor Abbott made in banning the the use or the consideration of DEI, which is again a very controversial practice, very controversial uh, program, but the use of diversity, equity, and inclusion theories and, and principles uh, in hiring, um, uh, either at universities or you know, at uh, public institutions and that kind of thing. So we'll get into that. Um, and then also we'll just get into some politics of the week. Uh, there were some crazy things, you know, the, the, the Democrats and Republicans are both getting riled up. They're both starting to uh, lob barbs at each other. And so we'll dig into some of that. Uh, but of course, first, the first segment that we always uh, look forward to is Derek and his Ledgeland update. Tell us about what's going on up at the Capitol. <clears throat> well, I mean, we still have the the finance committee hearings going on uh, the, just this week in the Senate. They reached um, Article three, which is ed- education, not only uh, K through 12 education, but also the various <clears throat> university systems throughout the state. Uh, so th- that continued apace. Um, the big items of note, though, is that we finally saw the committee assignments mm-hmm. for uh, for the House. And, you know, I, I know some folks who are you know, tickled pink about him. I know folks that are, you know, despondent about him. Uh, I, I think the best the best summary is that the speaker done pretty well with uh, what, you know, with the, the, the personnel that he had. Uh, there are some really strong folks in some really strong positions, but you know, they just the announcement came out yesterday, and you look at Twitter, and it's all these all this prognostication about oh this thing you know oh this is going to happen or this thing's dead you know before a comment was even made or a vote has even taken place, mm-hmm. and I think that the one thing that that just proves is that Twitter is not real life. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah, I've got we just did a, a big poll uh, and and uh, just got the results back this week, and um, I'm writing about it right now, and um, you know just as a shameless plug, we put out a weekly newsletter. It's called the Post. Um, if you're not not on that newsletter. There's a lot of good exclusive information in that. It's different than our daily email that we put out the canon, but I'm writing a piece right now for that. Um, and when, one of the things I point out is that 81% of Texans rarely or never use Twitter. 81% of Texans rarely or never use Twitter, uh, which, which again, just shows that it's really, you know, especially in political Twitter, it's really just for the journalists and the junkies, mm-hmm. right? Just not the real place. 19% margin of error that I'm guessing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, uh, but let's talk a little bit about, you know, the committee chairs, uh, well, well, you know, let, let's talk about that issue because that's that was a big one brought up in terms of uh, assigning Democrat committee chairs and all that. How did that controversy all break down? Well, there, are, <clears throat> well, there. Are, you remember a lot of the discussion around that was that um, the appointment of Democrat committee chairs obfuscate or hinder uh, Republican priorities, mm. um, such as it was uh, said by the party and. You know, and while that that can be the case, and remember, I think it was two episodes ago, I I cautioned that 
you know, it's 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 much more of a nuanced situation uh, than that. But what we have seen is that there are fewer uh, Democrat uh, committee chairs. But you still you still see individuals who have you know long time uh, terms of service in uh, certain areas returning. Uh, for example, you see uh, Representative Canales uh, chairing uh, transportation again. You see uh, Joe Moody chairing um, uh, crimjur criminal jurisprudence again. Mm-hmm. And so. It's almost it's more of a reflection and instead of a a partisan, you're an R, you're a D. It's almost seeming like that you really wanted to elevate folks who have experience in that particular area because you don't want to start reinventing the wheel, mm-hmm. you know, starting from scratch. But, you know, I, I think there's a lot there in those committee assignments for a lot of folks broadly on the uh, center right to be mm-hmm. pretty pretty proud of. And now, and I know that that our audiences are usually going to be political junkies who follow this stuff, uh, but maybe some don't. And maybe you could explain to to people why this is such a big deal. What is it about the, the Texas legislature and the process that make mm-hmm. who the chairman is and who the committee is made up of mm-hmm. so important to the success or failure of legislation? Well, and this, this is not universal, but a good rule of thumb is that a chair of the committee, it, we discussed prior to that, um, you know, essentially the default state of any bill uh, in the Texas legislature is dead, right? <laughs> and it, it is a com- the thousands and thousands that get thrown at the wall, right? Exactly. <laughs> it is incumbent upon the champions of said legislation uh, to steward it through the process. Um when going in, so all committees are defined by their ambit, what what it is that they can weigh in on, what they can do, the scope of the committee. Um, even uh, two of the select committees that were created yesterday, or that were, uh, you know, established with the order yesterday, still has, still actually has like discrete items that they can look at. Mm-hmm. You know, for example. You, you just can't send uh, taxpayer-funded lobbying to transportation or something without <laughs> making a pretty compelling argument about how that fits under that particular rubric. Mm-hmm. And so it, in doing so is all bills must go through a committee. That's just how the process works. That's constitutionally mandated. All bills must go through a committee. Now, if there is a committee chair who is hostile to a particular idea or a particular approach, the odds of that bill getting set early, getting uh, due consideration early, getting out early, uh, getting reported out and voted on early is, and I say early in relative context, mm-hmm. it, it's far less. Um, you know, and it's not, I mean, it's not even unheard of, both in the House and the Senate, for a committee chair who is so opposed to a particular item before them mm-hmm. that they just never said it at all. Right. And, and that's their prerogative of the, the chair to actually Does that do kind so. of thing prevent it from ever getting to the to the floor for the whole body to consider? <clears throat> Short answer, yes. Um, in the general process, everything needs to go through the committee. So if you have one bill in one committee that never gets posted or heard, then yes, that's that's done. That's it there. However, there are many, many other different ways. There are committee, there are overlaps in committee jurisdictions. There are amendment strategies that we've seen executed in the past, both in the committee and on the floor, uh, where entire bills have changed, mm-hmm. um, you know, and even still have satisfied the germaneness requirement for single subject. And so that's really where I think a lot of the 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 mental horsepower that's in analyzing the legislature needs to be focused, not just, oh, this one individual's here, they have an R or a D after the name, so that's a foregone conclusion. Because again, remember, it's, you know, partisan affiliation is a predictor, and I would argue a, a bit of a weak predictor on what a person's voting and behavior in a legislature status would be. And of course the the um 
the governor is going to be giving his state of the state next week in which he will be outlining his priorities. We now know what the uh, what the Senate priorities are, what the House priorities are. Uh, the governor obviously has been talking about the the legislative session and, and in, in fact, doing doing tour stops around the mm-hmm. state, talking about things like parent empowerment. Um, but we now we're going to get the official speech. We're going to hear what's, yeah. what's uh, really important to him. Um, any early early discussion about what you what you might uh, hear from that next week no and and like I said I, w- I would be that's that's where I'd probably be the most cautious about getting out in front of uh, just the governor on on what he should declare an emergency item mm-hmm. or, or or what have you because again remember the the 60-day moratoriums up in in early March um, so there would be a couple week uh, head start gain from some of these items um, should the, the committees take them up. But but again, nothing needs to be dic- uh, declared an emergency item for it, for it to get due consideration for it to move fast. Yeah. You know, especially, it just gives you that, that, that bit of clearance. Again, the emergency declaration or c- declaring something emergency item basically says this is what the executive of the state finds important mm-hmm. um and like i said i don't want to i don't want to get into prognostication but just you mentioned the the, the, the parental empowerment tour stops that we've seen mm-hmm. I, I i think i i think that uh, the governor's leadership on uh parental empowerment on school choice issues is, is nothing short of incredible yeah. i mean he he is putting his money where his mouth is his political capital where his mouth is and going out there and championing these i i now i personally and i think that your polling substan- i personally think and your polling substantiates that you know it's not a risky position you know parents want this you know parents across the board want this mm-hmm. um and but he's getting out there and he's challenging the status quo and yeah, kudos to that. So you you mentioned early early March. Um, so I will use this moment to to do some more shameless plugging for uh, a really important event that we have coming up. It's uh, te- Texas Public Policy Foundation's annual uh, sort of legislative event, I guess, not legislative public policy event. Uh, we're, we rebranded it this year, calling it Texas Policy Summit. In previous years, it's been called Policy Orientation. Uh, but we do have all three of the big three that are going to be featured speakers at Texas Policy Summit this year. So the governor. Governor, the lieutenant governor and the speaker will all be there uh, giving speeches, talking about this. And this is the this is I think it's March first through third, so it's literally right before mm-hmm. you know the, the 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 real melee starts in terms mm-hmm. of uh, legislative activity. Of course, we have tons of panels uh, on all kinds of issues, all the stuff that we talk about here and everything that we talk about on our website. Uh, all the top issues from border security to education and so on. We'll have members at uh, on each one of those panels, as well as you know other experts and people who are affected by these issues every day. So uh, again, shameless plug for our event. It's uh, March 1st through 3rd. Uh, most of it will be, if you can't attend, which we'd love to have you there, please RSVP uh, at texaspolicysummit.com. Uh, but if you can't attend, most of the events, I think all the events, we try to live stream uh, mm-hmm. as well. So uh, if you're not able to attend, you certainly can can still plug in and watch all of that. All right. So let's get to the top topics uh, right. of the week. Uh, some things that have kind of been rolling around. Um, obviously, the state of the, state of the Union, Biden's speech uh, was on Tuesday night. Um, and it was a little bit different, it felt like, than other uh, State <laughs> of the Unions. Um, I'll get to some comments I have about just kind of the general uh, food fight that happened. Mm-hmm. But, you know, what, what are your early reactions about what you think, um, you know, what you think the, that it says about what Biden's going to be focusing on the next year or so? Well, I I think that whatever was committed uh, to paper and put in front of him and then eventually mispronounced uh, from the teleprompter, 
I, I really don't think is going to necessarily mean that he focuses on it because I've seen, you know, this administration, I don't mean this as a, as a partisan jab, but just as a simple observation, there's a lot more preening in public exhortation than we see a lot of coordinated pushes on any particular policy issue. Mm-hmm. That you, you needn't look farther than, you know, the already baked cake of the infrastructure bill mm. and how, how much of a slog that was for this administration. So I just... I'd be hesitant to say like how much it symboled and ever, or it probably symboled, hey, this came back with, uh, came back in a poll that 80% of our base feel this way about something, put it in a speech. And so, you know, when it comes to the State of the Union itself, I'm definitely more of the Calvin Coolidge, you know, send like a maybe two-sided, a two-page letter to Congress, letting them know what the the State of the Union is. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I'm just, I'm I'm not big into monarchical trappings. I'm not big into, you know, (laughs) festoonments and all all sorts of, uh, you know, pomp and circumstance. But uh, yeah, I mean, the State of the Union being a, uh, you know, being a a four-page PDF Mm -hmm. that's uploaded to the White House website. That's that's more my jam. Uh, as far as content, I mean, it's just it was just such. It was it was, it was pablum. I don't say pablum because you know I'm, I'm sure there's pablum that works hard, but some of the stuff that in there was just stuff that not there's just no political constituency for. Mm-hmm. Right? You know, I'm thinking specifically on the Second Amendment stuff. He goes, "We're going to ban assault we- ban assault weapons," and that that has been refuted not only in the research uh, on violent crime during the assault weapon ban that he supposedly had passed. Um, prior to, but upon its sunset, you know, we'd seen crime drop afterwards. Yeah. We also see that, you know, there is this obfuscation on issues specifically Second Amendment related that, you know, it's it's it'll say something that, you know, at absolute curb appeal goes, oh, that, you know, that makes sense. And then you just peel back one layer and it's like this is a completely unworkable mm-hmm. mess that has no business with the federal government getting involved. Mm-hmm. And that's the problem with this current, not, I would, let me put it this way, not this current administration, but the ideal, the current ideal of federal power extending back several administrations is that, oh, here's something that is a problem, however defined. How are we going to deal with it? Oh, there should be a federal law. Right. And we should ask, be asking, like, why are we even engaging in discussions on this at the federal level? To and that was kind of my first critique of it, is that it all felt very small ball to mm-hmm. me. Um, there were some things in there that I didn't even know. I mean, I didn't even know were, were major issues, much less federal issues. I mean, he's throwing in things like the the resort fees and, and you know. So you got some tr- you got in trouble with that. I got on, some trolling by the, yeah. the people who were doing the, the, the lobby for the anti-resort fees. Or like Big trolling, anti-resort fee, yeah. Trolling me on uh, on Twitter, <laughs> but also, you know, federal funding for, for, you know, hearing aids and stuff. And I know that these are like important things to the people, you know, to whom they are important, right? Like mm-hmm. I'm not discounting that this might be an issue, but to rise to the level of a state of the union, I mean, it right. just seems, uh, it just seems really silly. And so that was my first criticism, which was, you know, this is the last time that he's going to be able to make a real policy speech. I mean, this time next year, we will actually be past the the at least the Republican Iowa caucus, mm-hmm. right? And we'll, and I'm not sure exactly when the South Carolina one is, but it'll be close. But this will be a political speech, a 100% re-election political speech uh, next year. And wait, so, so it wasn't this year? <laughs> well, they are kind of every year, but but that but to my point, this. This is the one where you can say, here's what we're going to do this year. Here's the things that we're going to work on and get past and, you know, and really do for the, for the American people. So that next year you can say, here's what we did. Right. Like we were right. We passed all these all these things. And it just seemed like stuff that, you know, if next year we're touting, you know, federal subsidies for for a hearing aids. I just don't know that that's that that's going to you know play with the American people. So it really um, 
uh, it, it really felt really small ball to me. Um, the other thing is, it, you know, is I found myself finding it entertaining. Mm-hmm. The back and forth, the the yelling, the the reaction from the Republicans, the reaction from the Democrats, the the president pointing his finger and yelling. It felt very late night political talk show to me. Um, uh, and unfortunately, you know, I, I think that was entertaining for people, and and I yeah. and I'm concerned about that. I don't mean to say that in a positive way. Right. I, I don't think that the State of the Union should be that. I mean, our the fact that that Republicans Republicans were the ones standing up and yelling liar over and over again or making hand gestures. I mean, just I just didn't think that was very becoming. And it's only going to get worse. I mean, right. as soon as we have another Republican president, you absolutely know that the AOCs of the world and the, the loonies on their side yeah. are going to be standing up and yelling and walking out and making demonstrations. We had Nancy Pelosi ripping up the speech. I mean, it's only going to get worse. And I wish you know, I wish our side or our side, the Republicans um, had um, uh, had you know, had not pushed it to that next level. I'm hoping that perhaps next year, maybe uh, the good folks can dial it back. Yeah. Again and again, I, I want to sit here and I want to plug my my trifold letter to Congress plan. You know, we 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 were still we're, we're going to bring we're going to make the State of the Union great again, and by that I mean again, the, you know, two pages in a mail. Um, but that being said, I think I think you're 100 percent correct. I think that. And I mean, I, this is definitely an across the board indictment. This is not a partisan indictment mm-hmm. because nearly all members of Congress can be painted with it is, the you know, Congress has become such a clown show that even those trying to get stuff done there and, and you know, who I believe in the best of their heart have these interests, you know, are have, have to engage at least perfunctorily in the clownery. You know what I mean? And there's no there's no alternative to get any attention it, on their bills or to get, you know, any media attention. It, 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 exactly. And it, this is the natural. I, I don't want to say this is the terminus. Uh, the natural terminus of our politics, because mm-hmm. that's not true. I think we can it can get so much worse. Um, so definitely no one to say that. But this would be I mean, this is the the, the public performance, the memification of uh, mm-hmm. uh, of, you know, of, of Mike Lee's, uh, you know, quizzical <laughs> expression. It's just th- I, I think you're right in that it doesn't help anything. And, I, and the one thing that I think is that it underscores and this has been included in states of the union going back, you know, all throughout my political consciousness is the movement from we are all Americans together. We disagree about X, Y, and Z, but I'm going to hit on one, two, and three that every American agrees on the, the, you know, the politics stopping at the water's edge stuff. Mm -hmm. All that stuff should be, you know, fairly non-controversial, but we've seen in recent decades, there's essentially the, 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 the split, the schism that it basically is a split between, you know, you're either with me or you're crazy or a deplorable or, mm-hmm. or what have you. And you just don't see anything that calls us to be, you know, th- th- our, our collective American, you know, calls upon our collective Americanism. But instead you see us actually like, oh, well, my team did this. And if you're on the other team, you know, this is this is the the Charlie Crist, uh, you know, I don't want any Ron DeSantis Republicans voting for me. <laughs> and he got his way. Yeah. And, and exactly. so but but that's the thing, though, it's like because because he essentially hammered the the uh, divide. You know, you get to a point that I want to make about the the GOP response, hmm. which was um, uh, widely lauded, at least on the right, um, was given by Governor uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders of hmm. Arkansas now, um, and that she did an absolutely fa- you know fantastic job. That mm-hmm. you know it was Reagan esque and so forth and so forth. But she did say 
during that, I mean, she she really, you know, she honed in on on sort of the 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 ethos of the Republican Party right now, conservatives. I mean, one of the lines that, that stood out for everyone was, "quote The dividing line in America is no longer between right or left. The choice is between normal or crazy." Mm-hmm. So you're seeing that. I mean, you know, you you mentioned that as as kind of you know, I don't know if you were trying to say it was extremist rhetoric, but it oh. definitely but it definitely is rhetoric that pits, you know, the, the tribalism yeah. of your side and my side. And of course, you know, we think their side is crazy. Uh, they think that our side is evil mm-hmm. um, and, and it's only going to get worse. You now have the, you know, the, the official GOP response saying, you know, th- this is about who's, you know, who's sane and who's crazy. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm going to push back a little bit on the extremist rhetoric because I think it, it's funny because if you were to ask uh, Governor Sanders or uh, President Biden, what do you think extremists are? Th- th- those two Venn circles aren't going to overlap at all. Mm-hmm. They, I mean, th- again, because it's such a solipsistic concept of what crazy is relevant to my personal politics, right? Mm-hmm. And, and and again, I don't even I don't even chastise Governor Sanders for using you know nor- between normal and crazy because there is a you know there is a colorable argument. That where a the establishment of a major political party wants to defend porn and libraries and drag queen story hours and, and what have you, you know, which even, you know, again, to your own polling, you know, are not these like massive issues in the public consciousness. Mm-hmm. No, you can you can say that's great. Now, that being said, is I would still always recommend a much more conciliatory, um, you know, voice. And I think and I think that. Again, I only watched uh, hers once. I do think that there's a lot there that could be considered conciliatory. Mm. I just, you know, I would just, if I were a speechwriter for either team, I would just start backing off the divisive rhetoric. Because the first, and, and you can mark my words here, the first party, whether it's the Republicans or Democrats, who determines that they don't want to live life as a minority party anymore, mm. is going to win 70% of the country just by being yeah. sane. Well, either way, um, you know, uh, obviously Sarah Huckabee Sanders, Governor Sanders, did a fantastic job in terms of mm-hmm. delivery. I thought the speech actually was was very well written. Um, I, I really think it does strike at the heart of kind of where the conservative or conservatives are right now, where the Republican Party is uh, in terms of how we see the future of the country and the the dangers. She she mentioned specifically <clears throat> border security, violent crime, inflation, mm-hmm. uh, and I think foreign policy weakness, which are, which are sort of the four themes that we've seen. And fin- all valid, very valid observations. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so so I thought she, she really did uh, uh, strike the message really well, and of course this is only going to fan you know flames of her political future. Probably not 2024. She's mm-hmm. probably not jumping into a, a presidential race just yet. Um, but certainly she did a fantastic job. Uh, she was on a national stage, and it will only um, you know the the call perhaps for her to run for president at some mm-hmm. future point uh, will will certainly only be greater. No, Brian, uh, I noticed you haven't r- ruled out a run for uh, 24. I have not yet. No, not officially. I, but, I cannot confirm early. that you're not running. It's it's too early. All right. Well, getting back to Texas, um, uh, there was, I guess it was controversial. I don't know. Um, the governor put out a letter. Uh, it was actually a memo signed uh, by one of his top aides uh, warning that any deference to what he described as, quote, forbidden DEI initiatives, DEI meaning diversity, equity and inclusion initiatives, uh, would violate anti-discrimination laws by favoring some demographic groups to the detriment of others. Um, essentially, what's going on here is that the story is is that there's an organization that put out a report on Texas schools on the various DEI programs around Texas schools, and the report highlighted the fact that that you know they're one of the items that is in every DEI program at these universities are these what they call diversity statements, mm-hmm. which essentially is just simply a loyalty statement to the far left. 
left radical progressive agenda, this though this worldview uh, that is steeped in things like CRT and and so on. But it's just these diversity statements. Really, again, it's just a loyalty oath to this worldview uh, that is causing a lot of controversy. Texas Tech announced that it will no longer um, use DEI in its hiring practices, and people, of course, are saying, "Look, we don't want to we don't want to uh, surrender to the woke mob uh, who can and can't be a biology professor." You know, particularly in the sciences, you need people who uh, who are innovative, who are creative, who are looking for uh, you know for for new studies and, and trying to find. Especially new after things. we need all these biologists to determine what women are. Well, well that for sure. Um, uh, but you know, and not just biology, but I mean, just the sciences in general, where is a, is a place where you know it should be about discovery and it should be about questions and and uh, you know why are we considering the you know what what your commitment is to DEI in order to determine whether or not you can be a a, a physics pr- uh, professor is this do you think this is just more of the left just being able to highlight you know or trying to trying to establish that that uh, um, that Republicans or conservatives are just you know a- anti diversity or or is there more there there do I think that they're going to make do I think that uh, the left is going to make hay of this absolutely um, <laughs> but do I think that you know the, the the whole DEI thing is you know kind of a a new pernicious film oh not at all you know coming from academia I can tell you you know, entering the academic job market uh, when I did, you know, about a decade ago, um, you know, I you had to basically have a teaching statement that reflected these uh, particular values. A decade Th- ago? Over a decade ago. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Um, when I was, yeah, right when, I, right as I was uh, finishing my comps for uh, uh, finishing my comps for my PhD, and one of the things that you you saw is is again, it, it's not that this 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 statement is secured in order to promote diversity qua diversity it's actually to enforce what is fair a fairly you know basically a hive mind that you have Mm -hmm. in academia and the opposite of diversity oh absolutely and 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 i and i will say though that they might have certain you know quotas uh to be to be blunt about it or certain you know other hiring considerations that would ensure superficial diversity and Mm -hmm. and again there's nothing necessarily wrong with that but to do that at the sac the sacrifice of actual intellectual diversity and you know i mean there's studies that go back uh that look at you know partisan affiliation in higher education that you know i forget what the 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 latest estimate was but it's something like well, yeah, they do yeah. the donor. They, you're able. You can look yeah. through the donations, and it's well over ninety percent of everybody in academia donate that donates gives yeah. to Democrats. Yeah, and 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 similarly, that reflects themselves as self-identified partisan identification. It's like ninety-seven or so. It's way way up there, and 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 not that I think that you know what we need is a we need affirmative action hiring Republicans or conservatives in academia. Even though some departments have taken some departments of centers have taken that particular approach, I, I think what needs to happen is that rather than having these sinecures, which is what so much of higher education is, and, you know, the lieutenant governor now is talking about getting rid of tenure. And I'm, you know, I'm, I, you know, obviously the devil will be in the details. I think that's a good start. But, you know, saying tenure, you know, saying tenure in and of itself is the problem is essentially pointing at a completely rotted uh, tree that's about to collapse and pointing at one leaf and being like, this leaf is killing this tree. It's like, no, the, mm-hmm. the tree is the tree is what's sick. And so that's what I think needs to be part of the discussion is not necessarily what are some of the issues around the edges, but like what is the actual role of state funded higher education mm-hmm. entirely. And that's not to say that there is no role for it. But if we're talking about, 
you know, we, we make the joke, uh, or made the joke back in Ohio about Ohio State's underwater basket weaving major, which is what, you know, most of the football players had to take in order to uh, be eligible to play for Ohio State. Uh, I'm a mission guy, if you haven't been able to tell. Um, <laughs> That being said is what we would talk about these majors and that would have absolutely nothing to do with, you know, the vibrance of the state, you know, the 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 health of the body politic. These were simply professors who would get a role or get a position in so-and-so studies. They would publish in the journal of so-and-so studies. They would get tenure from their publication, the journal of so-and-so studies. And so this entire system that we set up to be this hotbed of of thought and, you know, of radical exception and all this uh, focus on expanding the mind basically becomes the most cloistered existence. It is the most, it is the most uh, closed off, the most, the most epistemically closed yeah. uh, profession in the country, simply because we exist in an institution that builds its own echo chambers. Now we've, we've mentioned DEI, we mentioned uh, tenure. So uh, one of the other, you know, big issues in, in higher ed, and we can go in depth on this in, an, in another show, uh, but obviously the accreditation is where it really starts mm -hmm. is that, you know, in order to get federal funding uh, or sorry, federal loans to go to school, yeah. it has to be accredited. But of course, yeah. as we're learning and TPBF is doing a bunch of new uh, research on this, uh, it turns out that it's all a big con that in fact, mm -hmm. the accreditation is really just a way to protect faculty, mm -hmm. uh, particularly faculty who want to push this left, you know, left wing radical no. uh, uh, notion. So, yeah, they call it a cartel. And so <clears throat> uh, we'll go into that in depth at another day um, on higher ed, because I actually, th you know, I think I think higher ed is going to be a big issue. Uh, mm -hmm. This 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 legislature, mm -hmm. you mentioned that the lieutenant governor is, is very hot on on, you know, tenure issues. Now, the governor's talking about DEI. And I think there's going to be a big push uh, to look at accreditation and kind of figure out how do we break the we, cartel? We should do this because that that is definitely something I could just I could just go on about. I, and I, once, once people start finding out uh, about how, you know, certain departments are staffing certain offices or certain research centers at certain flagship uh, universities, because I think they'll, their heads will pop. You don't think this will, you know, this harm your future employment uh, efforts, you know, to be to just retire as, as, as Dr. Cohen someday in some obscure, <laughs> you know, university getting tenure and, and not having to be accountable for whether or not you're educating anyone? I, 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 normally, I'd say I'm pretty sure that ship had sailed, but I'm pretty sure that ship had came ashore and was ordered smashed. So, uh, yeah, that Rubicon <laughs> right. has been cost. So, what's well, a new retirement plan? So, we'll have to figure that out. Okay. All right. Well, uh, in the interest of time, uh, I do want to hit our uh, this issue because it is a, a, a top 10 issue, certainly for for, uh, for Texas Public Policy Foundation, but it's becoming more and more of an issue um, over the uh, the last few years. You know, you're, you're, it's taxpayer-funded lobbying. And what do we mean by that? That's That means, you know, tax dollars, particularly at your local government level, are going to fund private contract lobbyists who live and work here in Austin, uh, even if they're, you know, representing small towns or medium-sized towns around the around the state, you know, they, they generally live here and work here in Austin uh, and they're lobbyists and they lobby on behalf of whatever it is that the, that the local government wants. Unfortunately, it, it turns out that most of what the local governments want tend to be against the interest, particularly of the taxpayer or even just the, the populace at large. Um, uh, and, and, you know, and they're lobbying for changes at, at a state level. Um, <clears throat> the new research that we have 
the last time we ran the numbers, uh, local governments had spent over $41 million on of your t- hard-earned tax dollars uh, on, on contract lobbyists now, uh, four years later, or whatever it is, five years later. Um, uh, I'm sorry, in the 2021, so yeah, four years later, uh, in the four, 2021 session, um, local governments spent over $75 million, so almost double what they had spent uh, four years prior. So this is obviously a practice that is uh, that despite the 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 um, the attention that's being paid to this um, is not going away, and it's getting much much worse. Um, and so there's a big push uh, by Senator Mays Milton and others uh, to try and get rid of this practice. Uh, what's your What's your initial thoughts on you know let's, uh, the possibility even yeah. of, of eliminating? Because now you're taking on the lobby yeah. directly, and now you're you know you're you're taking you know money out of their pockets and food off right. their table. Yeah. Um, so it, it would seem like from you know from a procedural standpoint, um, it would be very difficult to get past. I, I will admit a lot of my private lobbyist friends uh, are not not too terribly enthused about this uh, <laughs> this particular legislative push. And and you know a, a credit to Senator Middleton, you know I think he said uh, that it was the first bill he's filed every single session, and I, and I believe that to be true because I think he realizes going back to his house days. Yeah, that uh, he realizes how, how pernicious of practice it is, and you know we can talk to we're blue in the face about you know, about, about the corrupt incentives. But I mean, it's, it's so facially obvious, you know, when you have a lobbyist that represents a city council or a city as an institution, not the taxpayers that make it up, but the actual taking of those taxpayers dollars and then sending them to the pocket of a, uh, a municipal or a lobbyist for a municipal interest here, you know, somebody that's office is, is right here by ours, is that that is completely contrary to what the, the taxpayers actually want. Mm. And so there's there's a million, obviously the practice should be banned, but there's even a million things you can do saying like, if you want to have a taxpayer funded lobbyist, you're going to need to have a full public vote on what it is you're compelling. Now, I think that's a, a good half measure. Mm. I think that the ban in and of itself is 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 the, the needed measure. But, but essentially, you know, the practice, again, not to rehash, you know, what we've discussed before, is that you're essentially taking taxpayer dollars to pay people to lobby against the interests of those taxpayers. Mm-hmm. What do I mean? When you see these taxpayer-funded uh, lobbyists up at the Capitol, what are they, who are they representing? They're representing cities, they're representing counties. Who are they, what are they arguing for? Uh, against appraisal or against any sort of cap in expenditure, cap in appraisal, basically against being told how to do anything different from the state, even though the state has to pay for most of this. Mm-hmm. You know, there's so much stuff that they argue against or try to prevent that actually benefits the taxpayer. Now, look, I'm, I'm not saying that every single community or every single taxpayer even has a uniform thought on what the municipal policy should be as set by the legislature. Mm-hmm. What I am saying, though, is to think that you have a democratically elected city council and that their will is then impervious to me as mayor, you as council person, you know, that what we want institutionally and professionally is the very same as those of the people that sent us there. That completely has not borne out. Mm-hmm. That, that That is not I have not seen one case where somebody has gone to the legislature as a taxpayer funded lobbyist and say, I represent this individual back in the district. They want the ability to be taxed. Uh, or the, the tax rate to grow up to eight percent and not just right. two point five. And let's, I mean, you talk about you know the things that are they're anti-taxpayer. Uh, let's talk about a little bit about what the lobbyists actually lobby for. Mm-hmm. Um, Austin's lobbyists push for higher spending limits, tax increases, more debt, reversing election integrity laws, 
corporate subsidies, and then, of course, a bunch of, you know, equity provisions mm -hmm. and so forth and so forth. Now, you might say, look, that's what Austin wants. Austin is, you know, 75% Democrat. These are the things that they want. But they're not lobbying to change the rules in Austin. Right. Right. They're lobbying at the state level to change the rules in the state. So so they want, you know, higher spending limits across the state. They want the, the localities to be able to take on more debt across the state. They're going to, you know, Houston is pushing for gun control laws across the state. I mean, this is these are not, mm -hmm. you know, it'd be one thing if they were just trying to change what's going on uh, in those cities, but that's but that's not what they're lobbying for. So, and that's clearly not. Yeah. If you look at any kind of you know election or public opinion polls, that's clearly not what the vast majority of Texans want. And there is no legislation that's proposed or has been proposed that would actually stop elected officials from advocating at the state house. You know, I'm 90% sure, I haven't talked to him recently, 90% sure Kurt Watson knows how to get to the state house. He can jump on a scooter <laughs> at City Hall and be there in five minutes. Mm -hmm. And so I don't think that's the problem. I think the problem is we started getting into this revolving um, this revolving process where if you look at the individuals who are engaging in this practice, they are also pretty politically active when it comes to political donations. And you start seeing a, a I'd say a vicious cycle mm -hmm. of advocating for the ability to bring more of this back. The people that are doing the advocating then funding the individual campaigns and, and so on and so forth. When rather than parsing that out, just having this conflict of interest eliminated, taken off the table is the way to go. And that's and look, you know, you really have to get into the books in order to in order to. And this is a really good point that I think some, you know, there, there should. The problem is you can't really get into the books to find out if this kind of thing is going on. Um, it's really just by speculation, which is, look, you've got a, a you know, municipal government that hands a bunch of money over to a lobbyist for, you know, in terms to lobby for them. That's part of their paycheck. Of course, those lobbyists can then do whatever they want with their money, mm. which then they turn around and hand it to the legislators that pass the laws that they won't pass and hand it back to the mayors who, who sign the contracts for the lobbyists. So you've mm. got, again, you've got this money uh, conflict of interest where, uh, you know, the mayors, you know, city officials have an interest in funding these uh, lobbyists who then use that money to then fund the campaigns to keep yeah. the mayors, the mayors and the city councilmen, the city councilmen. And that's, again, I'm not alleging anything specifically corrupt about this, but that can happen. And it and it probably and most likely does. I, I dare not say laundering, but wouldn't it be better <laughs> if we had this off the table and we wouldn't even have to worry about it? That's exactly right. And again, we're not saying that the, the, the county, cities and counties cannot lobby for themselves or lobby for their interests. Right. You just have an employee be, you know, your county lobbyist or whatever, because if you have a county employee, then you're subject to more rules about transparency and accountability and where the money goes, and uh, of course, and all of that. Um, and, and to your other point, too, it's a, just a silly argument to say, you know, well, we, we need to hire these lobbyists in order to in order to speak for us because, uh, you know, we can't get to Austin or or, you know, we're, we're too busy to, to go up there uh, and, and talk to our state rep, which, of course, if you ask a state rep, they talk to their local oh, officials yeah. all the time. So. I, I have never met a, a, I mean, specifically senators with larger rural districts. I have not met a legislator that if even, you know, the, the uh, you know, county judge of a county of 3,000 called them up, they wouldn't drop everything to return that call. All right. So um, a difficult issue. Um, it's actually growing in, in, uh, and more people are putting eyes on it, particularly when they start hearing about, you know, the way that it could possibly be corrupted. So we will keep an eye on that uh, this legislative session uh, to see how that, that goes. Um, so for, with that, uh, we'll close this episode of the, of the Right Idea. We really do appreciate 
those of you who are tuning in, who are watching, who are listening uh, on, on the podcast. Um, and we will see you next time. As always, Sam Houston said, do good and suffer the consequences.